What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode 10 of Blazing the Trail, the final episode of our mini-series. To finish things off, we will be spending the episode highlighting the revolutionary impact of one Chris Weber. Please remember that the article I wrote on Weber is also live as we speak. You can find the link to that and parts one through nine of this series in the description below or just by visiting basketballnews.com. On this episode, we have on the man that many refer to as White Chocolate, the author of The Elbow Pass, Jason Williams, on to chat about Weber's passing prowess and how it unlocked the Kings' forward-thinking offense. He even gives us the scoop on how he comes up with the idea for the elbow pass in the first place. After that, we have everyone's favorite NBA writer, Mark Schindler, on to help sort out how good Weber actually was during his peak season in 2001-2002. Again, please be sure to check out the article I wrote on Weber, along with the insights I got from Jason and Mark. It also features exclusive quotes with his former coaches, Elston Turner and Bob Stack. Anyway... Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for podcast consumption. While our series may be coming to a close, we still have plenty of bonus content that could eventually get released if we get enough requests from listeners. So be sure to voice your desire for said content in your podcast review. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, and stay tuned. Without further ado, for the very last time, I give you... Blazing the trip. We'll talk about in a second what made Chris so special. But first, um, whenever Chris does an interview, he, you know, it was no secret that when he got traded to Sacramento, he wasn't too excited about it. But what kind of changed his opinion was going to the first day of practice and hearing this, uh, what he describes as like a smaller, loud, white guy, just screaming, high energy, having fun. And that kind of got him you know, amplified and excited to play for the team. Of course, lo and behold, that that white guy was you. Can you um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Chris and how that was during Sacramento? Of course, man. Yeah, like, you know, when I, when I got drafted there, then all the fuss was about you know, him not coming, not wanting to be there, this, that, and the other. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know him at all at that point. So I was just kind of like, well, hell, if he don't want to come, then, then – and don't come, right? You know, so then he finally shows up and just like the first day of practice, you know, I, I'm just being myself, you know, I'm, I'm kind of loud if, if you know who I am a little bit, you know, especially once we get behind closed doors, I'm a little more loud than I should be, but that's a different story. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, I just had a bunch of energy and I, I, I think he, he seemed to gravitate towards that and, and, and I was just trying to do everything I could to make him feel happy and, and and wanted at that point, you know, just just to get get things going, and, and everything else is history. Yeah. Now, the, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you particularly is because, 
of course, you are a very talented passer. And usually, not always, but usually, you know, passers have a very high basketball IQ, kind of really good feel for the game, understanding of the team offense. And I think an important part of what made Chris special was kind of the the forward thinking nature of the offense you guys ran in Sacramento. Can you describe that a little bit to me in, in some granular detail? Uh, I can do my best, man. Like, but, but, but like the offense that we ran when I was playing out there the first two or three years, it was like, it really, it really wasn't, it really wasn't the offense that, that, that they were running when I got traded. Um, the, the, that Princeton offense that they ran when Mike Bibby and those guys played together, was was different. We were we were just kind of like high, free willing, high flying, up and down, you know, backdoor cut maybe here and there, but really looking for the three or the first first available shot. Whereas when 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 Bibby when I got traded and they were playing with, I actually think they were a better team uh, when the trade went down. Um, honestly, I thought they had a better chance beating the Lakers with Bibby, just the way that he played and and the offense that they ran was. Uh, uh, all predicated from Pete Carrillo, God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, that that dude, that dude's IQ for basketball was like second to none, man. Like you could just sit down with Pete Carrillo and, and listen to stories and, and learn so much. He's forgot he's forgot more basketball than any of us ever know about. So so the, the, those times were good, but that's another subject too. But yeah, the offense that they ran was just they had they had four five guys that. that like to pass and we're willing to pass you know i think there's a, i think people get get passing mixed up it's a good passer or a willing passer i think they're two different things you know um and yeah when mike Bibby wasn't was planted in there you know he just brought uh something different than, I, than what i was able to provide for the kings and and they took off from there you know so yeah, can you can you dive into that for a second? What's the difference, like you know, for those who don't know, between a good and a willing passer? You know, in, in my in my humble opinion, you know, I, I, it's just my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm right or wrong, but uh, I think a willing passer is, is willing. You know, if I got a wide open shot and I know that there's a better shooter than me over there with the with the same same type of look. Then, then he's got to have the ball just because he's a better shooter. To me, that's a willing passer. Whereas, you know, today's guards, there's not too many willing passers in today's league because I think, I think a lot of these players have to, a lot of these guards have to score 30 for their for their teams to be successful. So, there there goes the, the willing pass passing out the door. You know. Mhm. Now you mentioned um, somebody who's kind of been top of mind lately, Coach. Kirill, of course, like revolutionary thinker, uh, basketball mind, offensive mind. In your opinion, who had more influence on that offense? Was it was it more Kirill? Was it more what Rick Adelman learned under Jack Ramsey? What would you say? Yeah, I, I would probably say Kirill had the most on most hands on there, but but honestly, man, I think those guys were so good as a as a as a as a team. That, that they could really figure it out on their own, you know. Just I think Pete Carrillo and Coach Adelman just put put put, put offensive sets in for them, but then I think they just figured the rest out. That, that's how good that's how good they were. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so like now tying this all into Chris Weber, 
why was Chris able, like, why was he uniquely able to kind of unlock this offense? Because there was a lot of good power forwards during the time, but I don't think all of those power forwards would have been able to play in this style, if you agree. I totally agree. You know, I, there's a lot of lot of players that, that played before me that couldn't survive in the, today's game, in my opinion. But like I said, that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. I think Chris Weber, I think Chris Weber was so special. What made him special is because I think when I look back, you know, he was one of the first power forwards that really developed a, a pretty reliable jump shot mm-hmm. from like 15, 17 feet, man. Like the, the, the power forwards really wasn't doing that back when I started playing ball in the NBA. Like they were, they were more post up jump hooks and things like that, or or just trying to draw double teams into post and kick it out and get the get the thing moving. But but yeah, C Webb was like one of the first guys to 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 really hone in on that craft as a 17, 18 foot jump shot. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, he actually talks about like uh, studying Carl Malone his jump shot, kind of seeing how he was able to extend his career by using that. Now, again, one of the other reasons I brought you on again with that passing. So you, of course, being a great passer, you can you can recognize a fellow great passer. And in my opinion, Chris Webber was a great passer. Can you kind of describe the breadth of his passing and just what made that so special? Yeah, I mean, he was a great passer. And I think he was a willing passer, too. But but for that team, I think that they needed him to score for for them to have chances to win championships out there in Sacramento. But 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 yeah, with his passing skills, is the, the way the offense was set up at the high post there, the people cutting and, and and people being able like Mike Bibby, he was a dead eye dead dead eye shooter. You know, you couldn't really and Stoyakovich, those guys, you couldn't really double team anybody. And, and C. Webb was just such a good passer, and, and he saw the game, you know. As, as, as well as anybody that I've ever played with. So he knew the game. And like I said, being a willing passer makes the game so much easier, I think. No, I agree with you. Because, um, you know, you don't want like the, uh, I'm not going to name anybody specifically, but you don't want the black holes who where, you know, you throw the ball into them, everything kind of stops because that just, you know, stagnates the efficiency, the flow. I hear coaches all the time say, like, you got to keep the energy in the ball. Yeah, and you know, like like those those kind of black holes to me are like, I mean, they're they're not always bad. Just like like Carmelo Anthony, he's kind of a black. He would be he would be probably in the in the in the group as a black hole. But, but, but hell, he's a Hall of Famer too, you know. So so I guess black holes there there are some uses for some black holes, but just just not in Pete Carrillo or the Princeton system. Mm-hmm. For sure, probably like a weaker offense that needs kind of somebody to take the reins, like maybe like those 76ers teams with Allen Iverson, they kind of needed him to do a lot of that stuff on offense. Right, like Russell Westbrook was in Oklahoma too, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, an absolute monster, but I mean, just not going to be able to get it done in, in certain certain situations. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that 100%. Now you talk about like how how the offense worked and you talk about the genius of Pete Carrill and kind of the the read and react nature of the offense. I feel like in today's game, that's pretty much what's going on, where it's like not too many of those old school classic, like think about the Indiana Pacers and all the floppy they used to run. It's more like geared towards the Kings. Do you see the Kings having a, a pretty big impact in today's like offensive landscape? Well, somewhat, yeah, because, you know, we, we, we kind of just ran and shot threes and stuff like that. And, 
but but today, I mean, all the credit's got to go to like the Steph Curry and those Warriors just because of how they do it and how efficient they are at doing it. You know, they were, they shoot threes at, 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 at such a high clip. And really, all teams now nowadays like like some some days back in in, in my days playing twenty three point shots was a lot for a whole team mm-hmm. on one night. Hell, hell, Steph Curry might shoot twenty in, in the first half nowadays. So it's just, I think it's kind of different. It's, it's, I think back then there were still post ups to be had. Um, where nowadays there's zero post ups. I mean, we used to run like a turn five. I was just turn a, turn a guy off the uh, low block off the five man or turn four, blotter your C web, post them up, and just trying to bait a double team. If guys, if those guys don't get double teamed down there, you're going to get killed. I mean, they're going to kill people one on one. So, but nowadays you can play a zone defense too. So that takes all the kind of the double teams and things and the spacing aspect out of it. So, yeah, it's kind of like a run and gun. You don't, I guess you don't really want to set up, let guys set up defensively, at least the good teams. Yeah, yeah. Funny about the, you talk about the shooting today. Um, I was watching, and this is completely unrelated, I was watching the 2006 NBA Finals because I was, one of the chapters of the series is about Dirk. And I just was watching, I think it was game... I want to say game three when you just hit like four straight pull up jump shots. And I'm like, I wrote in my notes, I'm like, man, Jason Williams would be a pretty solid addition to today's NBA with that nice little pull up jumper. Man, I'll tell you what, I, 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 I think I would be kind of deadly at just not scoring the ball, but like getting into the paint and mm-hmm. finding guys just, just because of space. And, the and, paint grabs. And the, yeah, man, that'd be, it would be great. I, I'd have so much fun. Yeah. That'd be great. No, I, if I, I, I can shoot like Steph, if I can shoot like Steph Curry, any any like close to Steph Curry, I, I wouldn't be a, I would never be a willing passer, bro. I'm telling you, I can shoot every time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, who would though? You know, with that kind of power, it takes a, it takes a strong man for sure to rein it in. Now, so yeah. one guy who's kind of because you guys did run some corner offense stuff, right, with Weber or yeah. Divac, kind of at the high post facilitating. One guy who's really um, embraced that, Coach uh, Chris Finch over in Minnesota. And before he was in Minnesota, he was the offensive coordinator of the Denver Nuggets. He kind of installed that scheme in Denver. And Chris Webber has been on the record as saying his favorite player to watch in today's game is Nikola Jokic. Do you see some of Nikola Jokic offensively in Chris Webber? I mean, it's the other way around. Do you see some of Webber in Nikola Jokic offensively? I, 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 some, I see some of Jokic and Weber just because I'm from the old school and I and, and I, I got this can see older guys and younger guys if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, I think you know they both kind of play kind of lethargic, you know, not very quick, not very, not really very athletic, really. If you look at at most athletic guys in the NBA, there's those two guys aren't, aren't, aren't would be on high on the list, but they both. They both, they both just want to win, and you know, you know, I played, I played for a lot of great coaches, and Jimmy Brown, man, he had, he had, a, he was pretty simple. He had three rules for NBA guys, and 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 and, and I think it can still hold today. And that was be on time, know when to shoot, and know when to pass. And and the reason I say that is, is Jokic and Chris Webber knew when to shoot and know when, know when to pass like no other. So, so. With those guys being the leaders of your team and being a willing passer, that just makes everybody else's job so much easier from the front office on down to the equipment manager. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think Hubie Brown is like an exceptional basketball mind. I mean, he does the broadcast stuff still. And I'm I'm kind of amazed that a guy like because you think like old guys, sometimes they they uh, their their takes might be just a little bit too old school. But he's like so like right on the nose about everything um, and just, yeah, so intelligent. But that is a that is a good uh, way of looking at it. I really like that. Now, since you are like like uh, around the same age as Weber, I know he's a little bit older than you. But you guys grew up watching the game around the same time. And Weber's been on the record as saying he studied uh, Derek Coleman a lot and kind of modeled his game after him. Do you see that comparison at all? I do a little bit, you know, because they, they, they kind of look, 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 look like each other. You know what I mean? Like long, long mm-hmm. arms, kind of lethargic. He's kind of lethargic, too, but just like like a silent assassin type thing. This, this will kill you. And, and those two guys is demand double teams when they have the ball. So, yeah, just like, I mean, Hall of Fame, man. Just, he's a Hall of Famer, Chris Webber. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, to find anything that negative about his game, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And, that, I mean, that's why he's getting uh, his shine time on this series. We've been talking a lot about the offense, but the, the dirty little secret about Chris Webber's game um, when it comes to like these high level, high octane offenses, it usually comes with the drawback of like you lose a little bit on defense. You know, think about those like Phoenix Suns with Steve Nash, right? They were great offense, but their defense was only average because of all the offensive personnel. But in Sacramento, they consistently had top 10 defenses. And I think a large reason for it was Chris Weber. How good of a defender was he? I think he was a great defender. He was, like I said, he's just his IQ of the game is so high that, that he just and, and he studied the game too. You know, it wasn't just like he was out there getting along, getting away away with everything on his athleticism. So he was a really a really student, a, a big student of the game, and, 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 he, and he was a, a very prepared player. So he knew he knew he knew the guy's tendencies that that he was fitting to go up against that night. So he he went into the game prepared and. And, and and being a really good player doesn't doesn't hurt your chances either. No, it, n- it never does. Um, before I let you let you go, Jason, I had two more more fun questions for you. One is, what is your favorite Chris Webber memory? Oh man, that's tough. That, that's a tough question. I mean, there's so many good memories. You know, just I, I, I'm just gonna keep it kind of. Playing, I guess, just just meeting the guy and, and getting to know him and his family and things like that was was great to me because, like you said, I grew up watching him with the Fab Five and and, and 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 just 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 for me to meet the guy was all I would really want to do in life and let alone play on the play on his team and, and hang out with him at his house and and to be able to call him a friend today is 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 worth everything. Yeah, no, I mean the Fab Five, man. That's that's just such. A, I'm from Michigan. Um, I actually go to Michigan State, so I, I have a little bit of animosity towards Michigan. But that you just can't you can't help but love that that team, no matter what school you root for. Bro, yeah, if you like basketball, you I mean you shit the Fab Five, bro. Come on. Mm-hmm. Now the the last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is this has been on my mind since I'm probably like since I'm seven years old, and I found out about it. What How old you, are you now, bro? I'm I'm 24. I'm about to be 24, so I'm not I'm not too young, but I'm still pretty young compared to to some people. To me, yeah. yeah. Compared, I wasn't gonna say it, but yeah, compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
What made you come up with that elbow pass? You know, that's funny you ask that. I, I, I've rarely been asked that question, and I swear, like, in the past year, I've been asked it, like, five times, you know? And it, it caught me off guard the first time because, like I said, I've never been asked it. And, and I think, I don't really know the answer to that, but I think is, I don't know, you, you, if you've watched my highlights, you've probably seen me, like, cuff the ball and fake the behind-the-back pass mm-hmm. and come back and lay it on the same side, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think that I've done that. I've done that so many times in my career. Like, I've done that so many times. Like, I think maybe one time it, it hit my elbow and it, and it knocked the ball loose. So I got to thinking that very next night I went in the gym and I, I remember that place. So I, I put it there and I was like, what if I hit it with my put a little force with the elbow? Maybe it'll go back that way. And that's how it came about, man. I mean, I practiced that thing. I've practiced that elbow pass. I mean, I mean, thousands upon thousands of times, and it's probably only been successful four. It just pisses, it pisses time, me off that um. One, so go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say the one time it was successful though, it was a, a pretty big deal, so it helped me out. Yeah, it just pisses me off though that you didn't get the assist on it, man, because you got fouled. Like it kind of, it's kind of yeah. like a lost, lost jewel in history. Yeah, I know, but but what, what, it, it's kind of ironic that it still gets as much play as it does, and it wasn't even a basket, you mm-hmm. know. So just imagine if it was like Vince Carter, I, I bounced that thing too. I mean, man, that thing, that thing, it probably wouldn't even been talk about the pass. It'd have been about the dunk that Vince Carter did. The hell with the pass. <laughs> no, there was like a phase in my life probably for about five years, maybe from when I'm like 14 to 19, where every time somebody would ask me to grab something for them, I would grab it and then I would try to do the elbow pass into their hands and people would get so irritated with me. You should, you should re, re, rekindle that fire and start doing it again. Bro. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to start doing it to my girlfriend and we'll see how long before yeah, she breaks go. up with me. We'll just tell her, tell her if she learns to do it better than you quicker, then we'll talk about it. All right, I, I like that. I'm going to... I'm gonna pose that uh, little challenge to her. Wait, I just want to know: Did you um? Did that like? Who were the pastors you studied? Bro, I, I was I was watching all basketball games. Like mm-hmm. you remember, you're probably too young to remember like Big Monday on on ESPN. The Big East would have three double a triple header on Monday evening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I watched all those games. I would watch, you know, I would watch Pepperdine versus Gonzaga late night too. You know, just just to watch ball, but. But Jason Kidd was my guy growing up. That was that was my main guy. Okay, yeah. I I, I didn't watch the the Big East kind of uh Yeah, you're too young. Yeah, I didn't get to watch that live, but I, I do fancy myself a historian for my age, so I can appreciate I can appreciate the old school guys. Yeah, I, I love the old school guys too. I like I love meeting like like taking a couple trips to China with like Oscar Robertson and mm-hmm. Dr. J and and Dennis Rodman and Scotty Pippen, bro. Those, I, that 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 that's worth more than anything that basketball has brought me. Just to sit down by those guys and listen to those stories, man. That that's that's great to me. Yeah, no, I I can agree to some degree. You know, as a as a writer reporter, you know, I love I love the game. I love those incredible moments we get from it. But I think there's nothing better than kind of meeting guys like you, who you know I got to watch from afar as a kid. And never really would have thought that I'd, you know, be able to speak to you on the phone one day. Well, I just hope, what I hope you take from this is like, man, he was a cool dude, bro. Mm-hmm. I hope, 
Like if someone asks you like how, how I was, just tell them the truth, bro. I will. I will. I will for sure. I am joined here for this final installment of Blazing the Trail. Joined here with a man who he doesn't like to um, speak highly of himself, but we all know he needs no introduction at this point. He writes, I mean, pretty much anywhere where they publish NBA articles, but primarily at Dime, WMBA.com, Basketball News. One of my good friends in this industry, Mark Schindler. What's up, brother? I uh, appreciate the intro, man. Um, I'm psyched to be here. I didn't somehow I missed it. This was the 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 finale, so uh, I'm 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 honored, especially considering who we're talking about too. So uh, I'm psyched to be here, man. How are you doing? I'm I'm just amazing, mostly because this is the finale, and I am I'm tired of looking. Yeah, you've at, been uh, crushing games. this all all summer long, so I'm I'm sure. Thank you, thank you. But I'm just tired of watching games in like 180p. I'm sure you noticed that these last couple of days. That oh, yeah. We are blessed with HD. But um, yeah, so the guy we're talking about is, of course, Chris Weber. And it's funny because like, I'm sure everyone thinks of Chris Weber as revolutionary for his contributions to the Fab Five. And of course, like culturally, those contributions are just massive um, and greatly important to, you know, the way we view college athletes today. But today we're talking about a different sort of revolutionary characteristic of his, what he did in the NBA. And just to get us started, Mark, can you give us the ins and outs, kind of the need to knows of Chris Weber's game? Yeah. So I think uh, there's a lot of ways to kind of dive in and talk about Chris, but um, the biggest thing for me is uh, looking at at his playmaking, I think you can look at his career averages, but just, just under 21 points, just under 10 rebounds, right over four assists. And I think that undersells how good of a playmaker he was. Like the Kings were a top 10 offense, top five offense routinely with him, especially during his prime. And that was largely because how much Rick Adelman leaned into him and Vadi Divash running triangle, well, not triangle, corner offense, um, really getting the most out of him as a playmaking hub and, um, actually I would, I would say Chris is the, not, it's not the same player. Um, and we'll get into it more, but like watching, going back and watching him, I don't think I've gone back and seen a player who reminds me as much of Nikola Jokic as Chris Weber does. Um, not quite the same in like some of the wacky, crazy passing angles, but he, he'll pull out some things where you're like, whoa. Um, but like the processing speed, the, the way that he reads the floor, um, just really good decision-making and ability to kind of manipulate defenders without even having to necessarily move himself um, is what stands out to me. And I think the scoring is where it gets a little bit more interesting. Like he was a really good long mid-range shooter. His in-between game overall was a little bit funky. Like he didn't have awesome touch on floaters, but he was really good around the rim um, was good at getting to decent. I, I should say a decent at getting to the line. Um, he was, he had kind of like a knack for making tough shots, but also like not at the highest level, um, which again, like that's not to denigrate him, but like when we're talking about the highest level player, I do think there that's where you talk about some of the separation, like Nicole, that's, that's the biggest separation for me between him and Nicole Jokic. Like Nicole Jokic has like God tier touch. Chris Weber was not quite there. Um, I think we talk about him very differently if he's in today's game though, but then just hit on the defense as well. 
I don't know how you felt. I think going back and watching, it's interesting because the Kings finished sixth in defense this season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he averaged like right over three stocks per game. Um, but I think his defensive skill set was much more favorable for the 90s and early 2000s than it would be today. Really, really good hands. He actually, like, I need to see what his wingspan was because watching him, he looks like he was like a seven, seven, three, seven, four wingspan uh, at 6'10", which is pretty big. Um, he had like good weak side rim protection skills, but he was pretty ground bound. Like he was not the most vertical threat, even though like, I think he had like close to a hundred dunks this season. Um, but he was not really like a, an immense vertical threat, but I, I do think like he, he could fit in well in a team scheme. Um, but it would be interesting to see how he'd play today. I have a lot to say to that. Um, first off, man, I'm going to be honest. Like, of course, I've been doing historical work all off season. So mm-hmm. I've been reading, consuming historical content. Um, and you've been covering the WNBA so eloquently. I miss Mark Schindler analysis, man. That is just, I love it. I miss it. I'm so excited to be able to consume it again on a regular basis. But Appreciate now to talk about some of the things you said, the defense is, is something we're going to talk about a lot, I think. Um, and the big thing, you know, when I watched him, it was nothing because I watched, you know, you see, there's so many great defensive bigs of that era. You know, we're going to talk about some Garnett, Duncan, Alonzo Mourning. Those are the guys who are really going to pop out. Um, he Weber had strong hands. He had very strong hands on defense. It's funny. He, I wrote this in my notes. He remind his hands work a lot like Ben Wallace's where they're incredible for defensive purposes, but then offensively, like, I don't know if you caught this, but there's a couple times where I see Weber just dunk the ball too hard and miss because his hands are just too strong. And that's like mm-hmm. the telltale sign of like a Ben Wallace set of yeah, claws. I feel like that, that definitely plays into his touch too. I feel mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. So there's that, but then the big thing for me, well, there's two things. So I always, I, I call this like the, we're going to talk about Elton Brand in a little bit, but it's like the the Elton Brand thing, right? Where so I don't have like a a good philosophical ter- analogy for it yet. Maybe I'll come up with it by the time I write the article. But so in two thousand five, two thousand six, the Clippers play a two big lineup, right? Mm-hmm. And usually when you run these like super sized lineups, especially in that era, you're sacrificing offense for the sake of defense and. That two big lineup was Elton Brand and Chris Kamen, two pretty solid defenders. They end up being eighth in uh, defensive efficiency that year. And then they're like bottom half of the league in offensive efficiency. So you see the natural trade-off. With this Kings team, you get, you know, Weber and Divac. And uh, speaking, these two guys defensively are so similar to me, stylistically. I think Weber is a more athletic version of Divac, but Weber just, I mean, excuse excuse me, Divac just had such great instincts, great hands, strong body. And they're able to have the sixth best defense, I believe, in this 2001-2002 season, but still have an incredible offense. Now, granted, the three guys they usually had around them on offense were better than what the Clippers did in that season. But it just kind of, it's a really good sign in terms of you're talking about that two-way blend Weber can provide with the, the passing and the defense. And another big thing that was really interesting to me. And this is not, this is outside of the scope of the season we're talking about, but in 2002, 2003, at the end of that season, Weber has, you know, catastrophic injury that pretty much 
I don't, I don't want to say ruins his career, but definitely we never see, you know, this yeah, version of Weber again. Yeah, he's never back to the same yeah. version of who he was. In 2003, 2004, they bring in Brad Miller. Brad Miller, incredible passing hub, scoring big man for that time, right? And their offense stays pretty much the same. But in 2002, 2003, their defense was second in the league in defensive efficiency. In 2003, 2004, without Weber, with Miller, Miller in, and pretty much all the same pieces, they fall to 21st. And I think that is, that's a pretty big indicator to me that Weber played a really big role on a really good defensive team. Not saying he's by any means the like a Duncan or a Garnett or a Wallace or a Morning, but he's a really good defensive big man. I think that's something we need to keep with us as we kind of and compare him to these other guys. So like what we're getting, and I know like archetypes, you, you do scouting. Archetypes are disingenuous, myopic, whatever, but just it's kind of, it's a little bit easier to use them as we do these broader philosophical conversations. And when you get Weber, you're talking about a guy who provides that two-way juice. I mean, he's like a really good defender, not elite. And then he's just a really good offensive player, not an elite scorer, but an elite playmaker at that size, coupled with really good scoring. And so that's just keep that archetype in mind as we go through this exercise. And again, for those who are just listening for the first time to Blazing the Trail, we've done this exercise a couple times now with um, Andre Kirilenko and Cody Hodek, uh, Tyler Britton and Penny Hardaway, and last episode, Bryce Simon breaking down Chauncey Billups. But basically what we're going to do is take Weber's, what we, we've decided Weber's peak season is the 2001-2002 season, the year they famously come within one win of the Western Conference Finals, of, of the NBA Finals, excuse me. We're going to take that season and try to kind of figure out the range of player Weber was during that year. Now, just for some um, like accolades or whatever, he was second team all NBA that season and seventh in MVP voting. That's something to keep in mind here as we get into this. So one other thing I wanted to mention really quickly, the reason I decide, I think 2001, 2002 is the year we should focus on. I think the following season, he's a better passer, but this is probably his best blend of um, scoring and efficiency this year. He's usually, and we're going to talk about this, he's usually for his career below average in true shooting efficiency, at least during those Kings years. So I think that this year was kind of the perfect blend of the scoring and passing. And then of course, he's still young and spry enough to be a really good defender like we talked about. But really quickly, Mark, and I know we've been stalling for a long time, but I have one more like philosophical question I meant to pose to you. Mm -hmm. And so Weber plays... 54 games this season. He misses 28 games and then he plays in all the playoff games, which is 16. I found this factoring into my analysis a little bit. How much does something like missed games factor in your analysis when it's not them missing these critical playoff games? I think it's a good question. Um, I've never, at least in this context, I hadn't thought of it. I think um, what makes it difficult to, um, I'd have to go and check how many, did he miss parts of the 2002, 2003 playoffs? I'm trying to remember in my head right now. He does. I mean, he gets, he has the catastrophic injury. Yeah. That, Cause I was so trying I to, think I know he one. missed his point. Cause like what's difficult is in my opinion, like I think the 0203 team is better than the mm-hmm. 0102 team, which is like what makes it 
that much more frustrating. And like, I think on a grander scale, like you just look at, like you mentioned the accolades, like 93, 94 rookie of the year, five-time All-NBA, five-time All-Star. I think what's really tough with Chris is if he doesn't have the injuries he does throughout his career, I think we talk a lot more about him as one of like somebody who like he didn't he didn't make all NBA 75, did he? No, I remember correctly. And I think like to me, I think he has had one of the 75 best peaks in NBA history. But again, it's like when you're talking about longevity and being able to to have that, like, I mean, you just look at he never played 80 games in a career. The most he ever played was 75, which was in the 99 2000 series. I mean, other than his rookie year where he played 76, but like. So routinely, he had injuries, and it was mostly to his legs, too, which made it difficult, um, especially later on in his career. Um, but, I, like, I mean, just to answer your question bluntly, like, I think when you're looking at him not missing the playoffs at all that series, like, yeah, that definitely factors in, especially when we're going and, and talking about, you know, the guys who we think were the best that season. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just always have a hard time with that because there's been, like, in past episodes, there's been times where I've just been uh... – uh, I'm trying to think of a good example where, like, when we did the 2005-2006 uh, Billups season, I, I pretty much took Ginobili out against Billups because Billups played, like, I think it was like 1,100 more minutes, mm-hmm. even though I think, like, the per-minute impact that season between the two of them was, like, super-duper close. Um, So I just I always wonder what everyone's thoughts are on that. But I do think I agree with you where it's, like, as long as he's not missing those, like, the key games, those playoff games. And since they were like a really deep team that year, like a pretty deep team, at least um, they were able to kind of stay afloat during the regular season with that injury. But now I've I've prolonged this long enough. We're going to start by naming the guys that were definitely better than Weber in 2001, 2002. This is not in any order. Again, just for the people listening, we're not ranking the top 25 players in the NBA that season. We're just trying to see where Weber fits into all of this. But um, the guys I had are Tim Duncan, Shaquille O'Neal, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, Kobe Bryant, and Steve Nash. Okay, so I have a different list. Um, Okay. (laughs) Pretty similar. Um, I had Shaq and and Tim for sure. Mm. I think what stood out to me the most going back through this season was how dominant Timmy and Shaq were that year. Like, I, 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 like I, I, I knew, of course, like Tim Duncan won MVP this year, but then I went back and I looked at the Spurs team and I was like, how the hell did this team win 57 games? Mm-hmm. Like, or it, it was 57 or 58, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like Tim was amazing that year. Like just an unreal both sides of the ball performance. And then same thing with Shaq. Like Shaq was, for my money, the best offensive player in basketball and just – Probably just about, I mean, if you're comparing to to Tim, the, the second best player in basketball that year, or first, however way, way you want to cut it, I would go with him personally, but and as as at everyone else. But so I'd have those two, Garnett for sure, Tracy McGrady, again, like unreal season. Um, it, it's again, stinks when we talk about health and longevity and you see what he was able to do when he only misses six games in a season. Granted, that team was like pretty mid outside of him. I think Grant Hill only played 19 games of that year. Um, I have Paul Pierce. I think Paul Pierce to me was better than Chris Weber this season. Like I look at this and I, I'm like, he, I, to me, I think Paul Pierce should have been first team all NBA this year. I, I like, I think this was, this is the first all NBA team he makes, but to me, him being, 
I think part of it was probably positionality and how it worked out. But like, I think he was better than Kobe this year. We're being honest. Like, I know people would probably disagree with that, but if you're just looking straight up in terms of efficiency, how much he's doing, how good his team was, how important he was to it on both sides of the ball. Um, I'm there and, or I'm um, okay. Well, even looking at first, you know, forgot Jason Kidd made first team too. I would want a thousand percent have had Paul Pierce, especially because Paul Pierce is more of a two at this point. Like he's over, over Jason Kidd for me there. Um, and then I think like, to me, it's more tears. Like those five guys for me are for sure ahead of C-Web. Um, and then when you start talking like Kobe, Steve, Dirk, um, that, that group is where I kind of find myself putting Chris in like very firmly in the second team, all NBA, but not really knocking on the door first team. Um, I think that's where I lean right now. Uh, you could probably like put Ben Wallace in there too, who I cannot wait to talk about that. But um, yeah, to me, he was a pretty clear cut and defined top 10, top eight player for me in this year. Okay. So I had peers in the on the fence category, but I ultimately ended up with Pierce. Um, just a couple quick things on Pierce. He plays mm-hmm. like just an absurd amount of minutes in the season. I think he's like 40 plus the regular season per game, plays yeah. all 82 games. We'll talk about we're we're gonna maybe we'll talk about Antoine Walker for a second, but that team yeah. was not was not the most favorable that team. That team is bad. And yeah. I, what they won, I mean, like I think they won 50 50 games still, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. It was close to it. Like they were decent but like when you actually look at the roster it's like i have no idea how this happened um and again like that's a lot of paul pierce heavy lifting and well, was decent but like yeah not we'll get to it <laughs> yeah we'll get to it. but um one little like outside thing um i think it's coach jim o'brien was the head coach that season yep. and he's like famous for pace and space yeah pace and space just a shit ton of volume threes um, and I think that like, even though there weren't like that great of a three point shooting team percentage wise, like the fact that they were taking so many high value shots compared to the rest of the league, I think it helped them like just stay afloat offensively. And then they had like Pierce is such a good defender and they just had really good defensive concepts that year. It was just a really solid defense. And I think like those team in that week, Eastern conference, if you had like meddling offense, a really good, like isolation scorer and like really good defense. You could, you could sneak into the conference finals. Like the East is, is pretty rough um, during the early two thousands. So here's what we'll do though. Okay. So obviously Duncan O'Neill, Garnett, McGrady off the board. I'll put Pierce off the board too. And we'll mm-hmm. bring Bryant and Nash down to the on the fence conversation. We'll talk about it really briefly when we do that. But now players that I had that I think Weber was like pretty clear cut better than I can't really see an argument for the opposite. Steve Francis, yep. Heja Stojakovic, mm-hmm. Wally Zerbiak, Abdurrahim, Baron Davis, Dikembe Mutombo, Vince Carter, Allen Iverson, Antoine Walker, Elton Brand. Now, Rashid Wallace does not make an all-star team this year, but me and you kind of texted about this a little bit beforehand. I think he has an all-star caliber season along with the other Wallace, Ben Wallace, who we'll be talking about in a second. But yeah, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I would add, I would add Jermaine O'Neal too. Um, just because Jermaine, I believe, wins most improved this year as a mm-hmm. third team All-NBA. Yeah. Um, well, I have him on the fence as well. And then okay. um, 
this this by the way that there's just a lot of like question marks with uh the all-star selections this year and the last guy by the way who's um um without a doubt less impactful than weber this season that was an all-star uh who should not have come back after the shot over russell michael jordan did not need to be back this is not like a bad season i'd say he's still a pretty solid player and stuff especially as a scorer volume score at least but um yeah michael jordan just didn't need to be back um, I get the like respect thing and all that, but like in terms of, he's not one of the 25 best players in the world this season, but, uh, yeah, those are all my guys. Do you have anyone you want to talk about a little bit more? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else I wanted to bring up. Um, Do you have all those guys as like definitely less impactful than Weber? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I would throw on Jason Kidd too. Did you say kid? Kid's on my, on the fence. Um, I know he's on the, eh. Almost tough for me. That Nets team is is funky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I, I, w- I would agree with that. I think that the rest of them can be pretty squarely on the fence for me. Okay, awesome. Um, did you even like? I know I just want to talk about him really briefly. Did you think Antoine Walker was an All Star this season? That's where it's tough. And it actually, in I, I wrote on my whiteboard before I hopped in the Zoom that I need to write about Antoine Walker because um, he's like. This season from him is a really interesting look in talking about guys who have no hesitation in their game. Um, because I think that there's a tendency to clown somebody like Antoine Walker. And I think like, um, on one hand, I get it. On on the other hand, like, I think the best way I've ever heard him described is like, everything he did was picturesque, picturesque until the ball left his hands. Um, like he did not have awesome touch, but also part of it was his shot selection. Um, he could be a good defender. It just depended on the day. I think this season he was a pretty good defender, mm-hmm. in my opinion. No, but then very good he was also like a really, really good ball handler for his size too, especially before he got out of shape and and uh struggled with some some lower body injuries. Like he's somebody I would love to see play today with a more rain and shot selection. But I think this particular season, like, yeah, on one hand, he took a million threes and he got to the line a decent amount, 49% true shooting. On one hand, like, again, I think the third best player for the Celtics that year is, like, a very well out of his prime Kenny Anderson. Like, that's the kind of depth we're talking about in the league. That's a 49-win team. Their third best player is, like, averaging 10-5. and five. Like, that was that was a rough team. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, especially when you look at some of the other guys who didn't make it in the East, like, I think he's a pretty, well, he and Dikembe were like the clear guys that I look at. I'm like, I don't think they should be on this all-star team. Um, mm-hmm. Like Dikembe, very, very bottom for me. Not to be harsh to him, but like what his offensive impact was at this time is so far off. And I don't think his defense was nearly at the level of Ben Wallace this year, um, both in watching and if you look at anything, box plus minus, uh, looking at any kind of statistical metrics like that Detroit defense was what I think the Detroit finishes top five in defense this year. That Detroit team was really good too. Like a really odd cast of characters that doesn't get talked about enough because they're before, um, you know, before the, the Oh three Oh four team. Um, but yeah, like that's long story short. Like I probably would not have had Antoine Walker. I kind of get it because Boston was good enough to have two all-stars, but I also don't love doing the, well, this team was good, so they have to have two all-stars thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said a lot of great stuff. Um, like we said, this uh, the some of these votes were kind of a crapshoot. Um, that Pistons team, I think that 
just the sheer volume of his scoring. I think Stackhouse deserved some serious consideration. Yeah. Really great volume, good ball handler, good passer. And he's like a, a really just an athletic body you could use on defense. Um, Corliss Williamson has like an insane like scoring season on a per possession basis. He's like top 10 in the league in points per 100 possessions. Just scores an insane amount of points. I think he wins sixth man of the year. Very fun mm-hmm. business team. Uh, just a couple other guys uh, I think that should have gotten some thought. Maybe like Vladi Divac. He was really essential to that Kings team. They were just such a really balanced team all across the board. And then I think oh, you that wanted, Reggie, we're doing West All-Stars too. That's right. Yeah, just some random guys you thought should have gotten some yeah. All-Star love. But And then I think Reggie Miller. I think Reggie Miller's still an All-Star at this point. I think he's that good. Yeah, I think it's close. For me, I thought about Stackhouse, um, but like it's just the efficiency fall off for me because mm-hmm. his shot falls off a cliff this year. Like that's another, that's another all-star that I've uh, not all-star. That's another article I've meant to write for a long time. But like the 2000, 2001 season with Jerry Stackhouse underrated year, oh, man. Like this is not drawing? that great. What? His free throw rates are insane. Yeah. Gets to the line 10 times a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, shoots 35% from deep on high volume, like pretty much his best shooting season of his career. Um, it's kind of like one of the first heliocentric wing seasons we we kind of see. And it's something I want to dive back into and, and look at. But yeah, this year I probably wasn't quite there with him. But I, I agree in terms of just talking about volume and being on a team where he was carrying the scoring burden because that team, as good as uh, the defense was, the offense was like not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I actually like I love Sharif Abdurrahim, one of my favorite players. I thought Jason Terry should have been the all-star over Sharif this year. It was my thing. Like, this mm-hmm. is one of Jason Terry's best years. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, I would say, like, he should be on, even if you're not taking Sharif off, I think he should be on over other guys on this list. Um, I think I look at Jamal Mashburn as somebody who I would have probably had on over Antoine Walker because Mash was awesome this year. Mash has uh, all-NBA year the next year, if I remember correctly, which is, like, that season's unreal, too. Um, on the other side... I understand why Wally Zerbiak made the team, but this very much felt like Sean Marion. Like if there was going to be an all-star selection year for him, I think it was this year, obviously playing all defense level defense. Um, 19 and 10 on good efficiency shoots three. Well, uh, like you, I mean, we, we know what Sean Marion does. He's just a good player. I know that Phoenix team wasn't great, which makes it hard, but I just think like when you look at some of the other players making it too, I'm very cool with that. A uh, one thing I want to throw at you too. Thoughts on Steve Francis making it over Catino Mobley from the Rockets? Because I actually think you could make a case. I'm not saying that it's right, but I think you could make a case that Tino had a better year. Like I'm not an on-off truther like mm-hmm. our friend Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, but the team was better with Catino on the floor than with Steve Francis on the floor. He played 17 more games, he was more efficient. Granted, he doesn't have the same usage. He's not doing the same things in terms yeah. of creating for others. But it's just, you know, food for thought. See, the thing is, like, with the on-off numbers, with those really bad teams, I always question them because I'm like, yeah. they're like, because, okay, Steve France is like a starter, right? He's starting. I mean, mobile too, but it's like you're getting stuck with, like, your less equipped like teammates against, like, the team's, like, your opponent's best punch, you know? And like, I think one thing about Francis, I don't think he should have been all-star. I don't know if Coutinho should have been either, but I think one yeah. thing about Francis that really pops to me in the couple of games I was able to catch as him, like as an opponent, um, 
when I was doing the Blazing the Trail stuff and the Quest for the Best stuff is really like underrated guard defenders, super athletic. Um, yeah, his athleticism to use that. before yeah. Andreas was crazy. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Kind of reminds me of like uh, Westbrook a little bit, younger yeah. Westbrook, that athleticism. Mm-hmm. So that that's a good, I like that. I, lo- I love you, Mark, because you, you always give the deep cuts. I was, um, I, I was thinking it. about after the podcast proposing to you that we do this same exercise, but for the 2020, 21 season and Darius Baisley. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, I don't need to do that again. Um, wow. What a, that is a, that is a shot. Um, I'm trying to think if I had anybody else. Oh yeah. Okay. So if we're looking at West All-Stars, I think my thing that I would do mm. instead of having somebody from the Rockets, I probably would have given it to Michael Finley because Michael Finley was really good this year too. That Mavs team was, was fantastic. Insane on offense. Um, yeah, Insane exactly. Offense. Like his defense wasn't great, but granted, I don't think like that. I mean, Wally Zerviak's defense was not getting it done for me at any point in his career. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, that can lead into talking about the Wallaces because I still just think like, mm. to me, Rashid not making it was dumb. Like, I think he was a pretty clear all-star this year. Probably again, just tough because of positionality. But even then, like, I don't care. He was just that good. Mm-hmm. Get him on the team. Um, Bonzi Wells even has like an all-star case. Like, I don't think that he should have gotten it, but like, he's somebody that you have to mention and bring up. I think that was like his best year. He, I think he started his entire time that season, like 17 per game on really good efficiency shot. Well, Bonzi was a really good defender too. Um, like that, that I think that Trailblazers team won 49 games too. Like they were just good. They were top 10 in the league in net rating. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. They were a really good team. Yeah. Really like balanced they did good team. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what was I going to say? But yeah, the biggest thing is just Ben, like just to list off some stats, 51 Pistons team. He was the best player on that team. Like that's without question. Um, I don't love like BPM and, and win shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think like you can grab some things from them. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he finished first in blocks per game, first in total blocks that year, which not everything first in rebounds per game. First in defensive win shares, 10th in total win shares, and 15th in BPM that season. Like, granted, he had his flaws offensively, but he was the best defensive player in basketball that year, which you can say pretty much like every year for him, other than, I mean, maybe Tim, but like, it's just to me, like him, especially for Dikembe, like that just grinds my gear so much. And same thing with, with MJ, like that, mm-hmm. that Wizards team wasn't good. They don't even make the playoffs. MJ only plays 60 games. Then he just kind of gets a legacy vote, which I get, but I also don't like that. I don't like legacy voting. Just like earn your way in, bro. You know? Yeah. No, hundred percent. Cause if it like, it fucks up everything. Like when we go yeah. back and I know Nikias is like, I remember like every time they do all-star pods, he just gets infuriated by this stuff. Cause like, this is what we have when we go back and retroactively analyze yep. this stuff. Like, you know, me and you try our best to watch these games and stuff. But like the end of the day, we can't make up for that much lost time. You know, we weren't alive. We just weren't alive for most of this stuff. We weren't coherent. Exactly. So no, that sucks. Here's the thing with the Wallace thing. Cause I, you know, he makes third team all NBA. He wins defensive player of the year. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, he must have had the Devin Booker push because think about it. Like Booker's like, at least from what I remember last season, he's kind of like fringe all-star to me, at least like among most people doing the voting and stuff for the halfway point. And then like second half of the season, the Suns start winning a lot. And he like, you know, finds his way in the MVP race for one reason or another. Now 
on the opposite side, Wallace actually deserved a lot of this uh, um, credit. But I looked at it. Pistons go 24 and 11 after the All-Star break. Um, they were, I believe, 26 and 21 before the All-Star break. So I feel like them that getting hot. Yeah. yeah, them getting hot. And people are just like, wait a second, what's going on here? Obviously, they're not an offensively slanted team. So they can't do the Booker thing and try to ordain someone as the fifth in uh, MVP voting that season. Like they didn't try to make Corliss Williams and the fifth uh, in MVP voting that season. So they're like, wait a second, this Ben Wallace guy, nothing gets by him in the interior. That's that's our guy. So I think that it just took people a little bit longer to kind of catch on to um, what he was doing. But yeah, you're right. From basically from 2002 to 2007, it's it's pick your poison. Wallace, Garnett, or Duncan, the best mm-hmm. defensive player in the year. Just really depends what you prefer stylistically. Um, but it's one of those three guys, and he's just so insane. So the reason we're talking about Wallace on a Weber podcast is just like to reiterate, hey guys, like. As we're doing this analysis, we're thinking of this as Wallace is an all-star. So that's why he's a part of this. So honestly, let's just start with Wallace. I didn't want to start with Wallace. I want to start with the easier on the fence guys because mm-hmm. there's like tiers to the defense too. It's all weird. But um, who would you say is it? Who's the, if you had to pick the better player this season, Wallace or Weber? Oh, I think it's Weber. Like to mm-hmm. me, even just like going through MVP voting, to me, it's it's wild that that Weber finishes only seventh in MVP voting. Like he was clearly the best player on a 61 win team. Like that, to me, I think it's really. I I know you can you can point out that he misses a decent amount of games, but even then, like with what his actual impact was on both ends of the floor, with how good this team was on both ends of the floor, with how good they just were all around. I don't think that there was a player who rivaled his impact on the team, which like, I think that's what makes it interesting with the Suns. Like, I think you can always have that philosophical debate of, of Chris Paul and Devin Booker, at least the last, like, you know, I think that was less so this last year until Mm -hmm. Chris Paul really turned it on. Um, But this particular year, I I mean, I just don't think you can make that argument for anybody else. So that's what makes it odd to me seeing him. uh, Like he, he was like a shoe in for top five for me. Um, in terms of just looking back through everything and with 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 Ben like I just think it's so tough for me like as good as his defense was I think you have to take somebody like C-Webb who was very good offensively well I would call him great offensively this season while still being a very good defender instead of being a all-time great defender who is you know kind of a neutral on offense at this point um like obviously he does things in terms of his offensive rebounding that are positive, but it's just when you look at what that actual Pistons offense was this season, um, not that I would call Ben a hindrance to them, but like you get what I'm saying. Like there's there's mm-hmm. levels to it. And I think to me, I would I would say Chris had a better overall season. Yeah. It's kind of like, and just to tie this to modern players, not not doing like comparison, but it's like Joel Embiid and Rudy Gobert. Wouldn't you say kind of? It's yeah. a similar kind of discussion. Um, yeah. I think that the margins between Weber and Wallace are a little bit closer than Gobert and Embiid. But um, yeah, it's a similar kind of philosophical debate. And so I, I agree with you there. I think I, I prefer Weber's like two-way presence over Wallace's. Um, just just to move forward, because we've been talking about Ben Wallace a lot on a Weber pod, and he deserves deserves all the talk. I love, love me some Ben Wallace. But um Let's go with, so these are the on the fence guys. Wallace was one of them, but we're just going to name them off. Uh, we'll take turns debating them, talking about who we thought was better than who, and then we'll establish our range and 
Yeah. So the first guy, his last, his last really good season in my book, Alonzo Mourning. Um, while this was his last really good season, incredible defensive season, he's one of those defensive titans we talked about. He's right there with with Wallace and Duncan and Garnett. But the thing is, his scoring volume falls off quite significantly from where he was at his apex in the late 90s. And then he was never a great passer. In fact, he was like a black hole in their offenses often suffered because of it. Whereas Weber, he augments your offense. You can put like pages and bibbies next to him and you could run these low post splits and have him coming off Miami and Chicago actions, all this stuff. So yeah, it was pretty firmly Weber for me. Sure yeah, no, I agree. Especially because he's not at his, at his defensive peak mm-hmm. anymore either. Like he's still good, but he's started to deal with a lot of his injuries, which sucks because he's again, like Zoe is very clearly one of those guys who I think when you look at his stretch from the, the mid to late nineties, like was one of the probably 15 best players in the game. Um, even had stretches of being higher than that. Like particularly like his first two Miami seasons are unreal. Like Top five I know the, the there's like yes, definite, um, I want to. I probably wouldn't go quite as far as calling him a black hole. I think part of it was like, um, like I, I mean, it just would be like I, I always try and take it with a grain of salt because I think it would be so different now nowadays. Like he would be a much more clear cut role guy. Like he would still get his post touches. Um, and great, he was like a decent post up scorer, but not a good enough one to like really warrant as many as he gets. But also, just looking at what those Miami team offensive options were like. By this point, but like by the time you're hitting the late 90s, like Tim Hardaway is not like he's a good shooter and he can do some stuff as as a pull up artist. But in terms of getting to the line um, and just getting into the paint, like he's not that same guy anymore um, as he was when he was in Golden State or earlier with the Heat. Um, And then that team just like after they trade Mashburn, they're like pretty devoid of offensive talent for a little bit until um, until they draft Dwayne Wade, until they get Shaq like. I actually think that there's a case that Eddie Jones was like a better overall player for the team this year than Alonzo. Like Eddie was really freaking good. Like, again, I I know you love him. I know I love love Eddie Jones. I think like he's somebody you go back. Like, I think he a would be perfect nowadays, but I think like gets kind of uh, lost in the weeds because wing play wasn't um, quite what it was yet you know and i th- i think like even looking back you you could definitely make that case but yeah long story short zoe was not in that in that category for me yeah um so next you mentioned him i also thought jermaine o'neal was an all-star this season mm-hmm. um just a really good defensive presence uh not not quite the one wallace was his offensive post game reminds me a little bit of weber's in that he had the like long mid-range jumper he had the jump hook. He he went to the fall away, I think, a little bit more than Weber did. But uh, again, not the the big thing for me is just wasn't the the passer and wasn't as efficient as Weber. And that's going to be like with those big men, just kind of when, the thing that made Weber so special and why we're talking about him. But yeah, it was pretty firmly Weber for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's sick because this is like Jermaine's real breakout year. Mm-hmm. Um which is always cool to go back on because he's one of my favorite all-time players. Like, he's a guy who I look at, again, like, a, his game would be adapted now, but I think he'd almost be better today um, because he was really a tweener back then. Like, he grew into his body, but especially, like, I'm trying to remember, I was watching, like, Anthony Mason highlights the other day. and it was I was going to ask why you were doing that. Yeah, so it was, I was watching, it was J.O.'s rookie year, and he's, mm-hmm. like, I mean, he was 6'11", but he looks like he came into the league, like, 210, 215, and it shows. Um and like even in this year, like I think throughout his career, like 
people, especially in Indiana, ragged on him about not wanting to play center. Like he was very much uh, AD before AD in that right. Um, and I think he had a right to be that way. Like some of the guys were talking about playing center, like David Robinson's still playing. David Robinson's like 7'1", 250, 260. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to bang with him in the post when I'm 6'11", 225. That's not easy to do. Like, and part of what made J.O. cool was he was a really good face-up player, like especially before he had injuries. Like he was a pretty good ball handler. Like not, again, not a great passer, but like in terms of actually taking the ball to the rack and and his post footwork, like that was a staple of his game. Um, so I think when you're in a kind of awkward position of being like more of a four and a half in that era, that's where you kind of opted into having like some of these odd shot selections and and just more inefficient play. And I think um, it's just, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at, but yeah, no, I, I don't think that he was on this. He, he was not better than Chris for me, but he was, he was close to that. And he's somebody who I think like, again, in a different, uh, if we have like different lenses looking through it, I think like he probably makes more all defense, makes all defense teams at all, I should say. Um, Cause he was somebody who I think mm-hmm. that gets lost. Like he was a really good defender, especially at his peak um, before injury set in like really good shot blocker. He was very mobile, like, very, very mobile for his size. Um, always a fun watch. It's funny. Me and Cody, when we went back into the 2003-2004 season for Andre Kirilenko, we mm-hmm. were both pretty much in agreement that he he was a better defender than Ron Artest on those Pacers teams. Ooh, uh, interesting. In, in I would not opinion. go there. I think that he was really good. But Ron was like, I know you, I, I know Cody, like, I, I'm not, I mean, this is the nicest way possible. Cody loves himself some protection. And I get it, but I think Ron, <laughs> Ron might be the, Ron is top five perimeter defenders of all time for me. I, I don't disagree of, with that. Yeah. But like, I mean, when I, I don't know, man, for the most part, see, I'm not like Cody where I'm like hundred percent married to the, I'll take like a, uh, an elite um, rim protector over a guide tier perimeter defender. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. See, like I'm the opposite with uh, Shane Battier. I think Shane Battier was more important to the Rockets' defense than Yao Ming. Uh, yeah, but that, that's just me. But um, I don't know. I thought that season. I, I guess I want to. I'm gonna have to go and look back. That'll be a different project for a different day. We'll do the the 2003-2004 Pacers season. I'm sure just people to are break dying. My heart a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just dying to hear about that. So, anyways, let's see here. They're there. We're gonna take Weber over O'Neal. Next, another one that was like. This is probably the last one where it's like pretty firmly for me, but uh, his last all-star season and just an insanely good career, Carl Malone, um, you know, you could just, you could see it a little bit. The efficiency is starting to dip. He's old. He's 38 years old, you know, for Christ's sake, um, defensively starting to slow down. The jazz offense is no longer that illustrious, um, you know, top five, top seven offense. They constantly were their 10th this season. Uh, Stockton's 39. But yeah, it was pretty firmly for me, Weber at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially like Carl was a decent passer, but like not mm. close to to Chris's level. And like you mentioned, the efficiency falls off. Um, this team just isn't as good. It happens. You get old. Um, so I, I would say he's pretty clearly out for me. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now we're in this like, so Wallace was kind of in this category, but we touched on him earlier. But these last couple guys were really tough for me. Um, we're going to start with, with kid, because I know this one was a little bit easier for you, but I just want to say this. And me and me and Cody actually talked about this kid, probably Cody didn't say this. I'm saying this 
Cody did say that Kidd was a better um, defender than Peyton at his peak. But I'll, I'm going to go as far as to say that Kidd's probably the best guard defender um, I've ever seen. And I know like guard defense in the grand scheme of things, it can't like catapult your defense to the heights, like a great rim protector, like Jermaine O'Neal can, but like the way he did it with the, you know, he was great rebounder. He was great off the ball. He was great on the ball. He had such great instincts, great communicator. Like that Nets team is the best defense in the league. And Kenyon Martin, hell of a defender, mobile defender, like switchable defender, really good defender, but man, kid is just so good. And then he's like, you know, like pseudo magic Johnson in transition. Um, he, it just, it makes it really hard on me. In the end, I went with Weber just because kids like half court offense, is not really yeah. all that, um, especially during this time, but uh, it's close. And I, I'm kind of curious to see why you had a little bit easier of a time. Yeah, I just had an easier time. Like, I think, again, like he's close for me. Like he's a top 20, top 15 player this season, mm-hmm. but it's just the efficiency. Like he doesn't, and he doesn't boy it with getting to the line either this year. Like he had just like, I, I'd be curious to go back and watch the Nets this year because he just had like an kind of like, especially considering this is very squarely in his prime um, from the end of Phoenix to the beginning of, uh, of his time in, in New Jersey. Like he just kind of has a down year. Well, it's still being like good, but compared to the rest of his season, like it's just not that awesome of an offensive year. Like again, granted, like it's important to note for people listening, like we're talking about like, picking apart the top 20, 25 mm-hmm. players in the league. So it makes a difference. But um, yeah, overall for me, I, I just don't think that he's quite there. Um, and it's interesting too, because like watching him, uh, the last couple of years of him in Phoenix, it's really odd seeing how solid he was in the half court compared to uh, what he was at points in New Jersey. Uh, well, yeah, when it's New Jersey at that point, like granted, not like a God tier rim finisher or anything, but like the 98 99 Phoenix season, first of all, very fun year to watch because it's like him very and Penny. fun, very um, fun. Like that team was good, they were mm-hmm. 27 and 23, but like good, fun team to watch. Um, but yeah, I think that that's just kind of where I'm leaning with it. Yeah, no, I think I caught one one game from them during my film. It, it always like I try to avoid consuming any penny content post 1997 just because it like breaks my heart because yeah. he was like that's like a different podcast but man he it's would tough because be, you get yeah. like the the flashes of him still being mm-hmm. really good but then it's not like but then you're just like well that's not him and also i was wrong it's not the 98 99 season, it's the 97 uh 98 season that that penny's on um i believe or can i read Cannot read. It is. I think it's the 98, 99, because 97, 98, he's hurt. Um, I'm pretty sure. It's one of those, it's one of those years. All that matters, they were on a fun team together. Yes. But yeah, so we're both kind of in the camp at the end of the day. While it's super close, Weber over Kidnap. I'm really glad you mentioned that. When we talk about these guys, man, we're just we're picking like the the, the tiniest of nits. Like I call Jermaine O'Neal like a poor passer. I'm talking relative to these great passing bigs. Like he was like, he's better than pretty much like 85% of the bigs that were, you know, being trotted out during this time span. Anyways, the next guy I want to talk about, um, another one where for me, I ended up going with Weber, but I'm going to let you start talking about it first, just for some, um, to change things up a little bit, but uh, Ray Allen. Yeah, this one, uh, 
first of all, people forget, man, Bucks Ray was incredible. Bucks Ray was so good. Like, obviously, he got to be really, really good in Seattle. Um, but Milwaukee Ray was, um, I think, a better passer than people realize. Like, he was a lot more of a, I think he gets remembered more as a wing, but he was really more of a combo guard, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, like, all of his playmaking reads came out of his prolific shooting. Um, this 0102 season, he shoots 43% on eight attempts per game, which is like pretty, pretty damn nutty from outside. Like, I think he, yeah, he's, he's not bordering on like 50, 40, 90, but he's like around there. Um, and just like a really good season. This is the year. I mean, this was like the weird year for the Bucks because it's after they, they had a shot to go to the finals last year. They have one of the all time great, uh, conference finals, uh, series against, uh, the 76ers. Um, and that team, they probably would have not played Super Bowl against the Lakers, but I would still like to have seen them in the finals that year. But then they had they made the trade for Anthony Mason this year, and it doesn't really work out super well. And I think they go like 40 and 42, but Ray's still really damn good, man. Like he gets to the rim, he's athletic around the rim, he's kind of an acrobatic finisher. Um, he doesn't really draw free throws at a super high level, but again, like such a good off-ball mover, cutter. Um just really, really pretty game to watch. Um, and I think like he's definitely somebody who I think is like close. Um, like he, I'm trying to, he doesn't make an all NBA team this year. I think I'm trying to check. I'm pretty sure he does not. But I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I don't have any uh, slides up, but while you do that real quick, I'm just going to say, not. okay. Yeah. But um, I was going to say in my notes, I had Wally Zerbiak is like a, like a poor man's, Peja, he's like 80% of what Peja was. And then yeah. Ray Allen's like a souped up Peja Stojakovic in offense in a lot of ways. But um, here, the thing I think to note though is like, and again, this is me talking in a vacuum, like a, about like archetypes and stuff. But like usually we care more about offense when it comes to like guards and smaller forwards. And then we care a little bit more about defense when it comes to bigs. But the thing about Allen, like you said, he's like a better passion than we remember. But the thing is, he's like, I think Weber's still a better passer, even though oh, yeah, like Weber's, sure. you know what I mean? Like Weber's yeah. a big and Allen's a small. And the fact that one of the most important parts of being like a smaller guy is that playmate, the added playmaking you'd give over most bigs is being usurped by that big. I think when we're comparing him like this, it gives Weber the edge ultimately. And again, just kind of highlights how special he was. The fact that he was able to, to surpass guards like that. Yeah. Speaking of guards, we have, Let's see, two more on my list, one of them being a guard, Gary Payton. Um, I just want to say this before I let you speak. And Gary Payton reminds me a lot of Kawhi Leonard, where it's like he peaked as a defender first, and then he peaks as an offensive player later. And then people do this weird like calculus in their head where they think that both happen in the same time. And they're like, wait a second, is Gary Payton actually like one of the best players that ever lived? And he is one of the best players that ever lived, but not one of the best players that ever lived. And it's like, it's for that reason. That's usually the thing that happens with these super athletic, super defensive freaks that kind of turn into superstars where it's like, you know, they, once the athleticism starts to fade a little bit, they, they develop more guile and more strength and usually become these better offensive players. But I just wanted to go on that rant, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn the floor over to you first, because this one was really tough for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still think that it's C-Web for me, mm-hmm. um, unless like, I, I guess if you're going on like a per game basis and just saying like, okay, well, 
Gary did not miss a game and he played 40 minutes per game while being an all defense level guy. Um, while being a really darn good offensive player at this time. So like he was a really good passer. Um, mm -hmm. like his game, like you mentioned, I think his offensive game grew outside of just being like a really good at rim finisher because he was so athletic early in his career. Um, and this team was decent. They weren't bad. Like Rashard Lewis is here. He's growing as an offensive player. Mm -hmm. Brent Barry has like the best year of his career. Uh, shout mm -hmm. out Brent Barry, who actually, if you just want to look at like total impact, is a guy that you could talk about as potential all star that year. Plus minus happen. God this year. Yes. Plus minus God, uh, Brent Barry. Um, yeah, that team was like, they were funky, but they were, it's a weird roster build. Like, especially too, because like uh, a random shot. But um, when, Oftentimes we talk about like the Sonics post Sean Kemp as just like Gary Payton. Vin Baker was supposed to be the guy. Like Vin, mm -hmm. like they bring in Vin Baker um, after Sean Kemp kind of has his falling out in Seattle, and like Vin Baker was good before he started to deal with some injuries. Which again, like there are so many got so many bigs and bigger forwards in the '90s and 2000s who just really struggled because of injuries, but like. I, I believe his all NBA game teams came when he was in Milwaukee, but he was like a 21 10 guy. And like, again, good efficiency. It was a solid defender. Um, and he filled a lot of what Sean Kemp brought without having like quite the same um, dynamism. But yeah, it just never quite worked out because he started to struggle so much after his first or second year in Seattle. Um, mm -hmm. Again, random shot. But uh, yeah, I. I think this is one of the, I agree with you. I think this is one of the ones where you can kind of nudge me in that direction. Uh, but I'm probably still see Webb over him. If you're looking at just like a per game impact. Yeah, I uh, agree with everything you said. Just a couple of things I want to point out. Seattle offense is fifth in the league. Um, again, I, you know, Payton's whatever, he's the quarterback of that. And then they're seventh in net rating. They take the Spurs to five games. Remember, it was a five-game mm -hmm. setup. This was the last season of that, actually, I believe. Um, in the first round, the Spurs, of course, you know, dynastic team, incredibly good team. We talked about Duncan, dynastic season. But, um, yeah, I ultimately sided with Weber because, again, Payton never, never really has, like, that high-end efficiency. He's always right around league average. Um, and then, like I said, with the, the defensive peak and offensive peak, like not coinciding, he was like at this point, 2002, he's 33 years old. He's like, I don't know. I think like, and I'm not trying to like, he's still like better than most guards, but like him and kid yeah, are on different the, levels. He's not the defender. He was. Yeah. He's not kid, especially not now, you know? So like, I think that just that combination of stuff, um, I ultimately went with Weber, but it's close. Like Peyton has like a. He's like a, you know, top 10, top 12 guy this season at the age of 33, if you ask me. And that's like just an incredible feat on his behalf. That takes us to the final on the fencer guy. Um, that is Dirk Nowinski. That, this one was like, this one was really tough for me. Um, just a couple things to know of importance this was not the Dirk that we all became familiar with. This is not, you know, mid post executioner, you know, up and unders, pump fakes, one legged fade away. He was like what you'd call a play finisher. He played primarily off of Nash and Finley in the pick and pop. Um, 
he would come off pin downs, off of floppy action, all of those things. So he was not like this isolationist. He was he was playing off these guys. He was a dependent scorer. And then he also, this is the weird year where Don Nelson starts him at the five. So he's just getting like torched on defense. Like for mm-hmm. once we get to like 2004, 2005, Dirk, he's still pretty athletic and he's got enough institutional knowledge where he's like pretty solid defender. Thanks to his size. He's playing the four. He's usually next to a good defensive five, but here he gets burned. Like there's like a significant gap between him and Weber on defense. And then again, like Dirk, like with most players, as he gets older, he becomes a better passer. So right now, while he's still young, he still has some deficiencies in his passing game. He never gets the level of Weber, even when he is like a really good passer for his position. So Weber has that. And then because Dirk's not an isolationist yet, he hasn't, you know, created all these counters. Him and Holger haven't been in the lab that long yet. They were in the lab for a while at this point, but not... They hadn't reached full form yet. And we talk about this in chapter seven, but um, because that I want to say, man, like I want to say that Weber's better, like independent scorer at this point too. And I think when you put all those factors together, I think I go Weber. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I'd say better independent score, but I think it's um, it's, it kind of brings in a great point of talking about how I just don't think that you can divorce playmaking and scoring at the same time because what Weber was able to do with his scoring gravity to me is more impactful mm-hmm. um, because of what he brings as a passer and playmaker. And um, like, I, I like to me, I think like people can defer and how they view it, but that's how I would personally look at it. Um, granted, like it's important to note, like Dirk was like about like 6% above league average true shooting at this point was super efficient. Like the stuff that he was doing was, was groundbreaking, especially at the time. But I still like, I mean, Chris is a better defender at this point. The The passing gap is huge. And I don't think the scoring gap is enough to really close that for me. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I lean the same way with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Um, I wanted to mention this in the opening. And it's funny, we've been talking for so long and we're still like missing things. And it just kind of tells you how amazing he is and how many little intricacies. But if you like, if you paid attention and, you know, I haven't watched like hundreds of Kings games, but I, you know, I've watched a good deal before Weber gets hurt in 2002, 2003, even though I would say Divac is probably a little bit better of a passer. They Ooh, always want to really? just a smidge better, smidge better. I'd say Divac is, but um, because Weber has that just immense threat to score because the gravity he has, they want they usually run most of their offense through him when they're running it on the elbows. It was usually Weber. It's because again, like, and that's one of the reasons why his efficiency isn't like that illustrious, like, you know, Dirk's a bad example. Cause even when Nash and Finley left, he still like, once he developed in that isolation, it still had like bonkers efficiency, but like, it's the, it's the reason that Peja gets to have like super high efficiency. It's because Weber not only is Weber setting him up with these, you know, passes thanks to his gravity and, you know, the handoffs and all that stuff, but he's the one late clock. He's the one who's got to, who's got to take the shot. He's the one taking those double. Cause I tweeted about this a couple, a couple days ago. Like I used to think when I watched basketball, like every time a guy took a double team or a bad, bad quote unquote bad shot that like, that was a bad possession. But the thing is you need to take those tough shots. You need to take that shot with a second defender coming at you because 
they would never come in the first place if you never did. You would never create that gravity if you never did those things. You know, it's the fact that you're willing to do that that opens up those opportunities. So I think it's like you said, blending the ability to pass and score. And that's why it's so hard to isolate the two. And like we try to sometimes we as analysts, not saying you, but we try to isolate those things sometimes. But like you said, it's hard because it's like such a symbiotic relationship to the two. And I think Weber at this point had just kind of reached like the perfect blend. And that's why like we have him over all of these guys, you know? Yeah. No, that's a great point. Like you, um, you just can't really, you can't really separate the two. Like, I think you can, you can have like some conversations and trying to, mm-hmm. to to pick apart certain points, but that's why, like we talked about with Antoine Walker earlier, like, I think that's where it becomes an interesting thing. So I know again, like it's easy to be like, well, he was so inefficient and like the same thing with talking about Jason Kidd. Like, I think again, that's like, I would personally say Gary Payton was better this year than Jason Kidd. Um, mm-hmm. Just because like, I, I granted, it's not the same level of defense, as you, but what he was as an offensive player was just better to me. Um, But again, like Jason Kidd still did things that were really impactful offensively with like, I I think you can, you can look at his, his offensive game was really weird. That's like a a fun thing to pick apart and look at too. But um, like overall, like when you have somebody like Antoine Walker, okay, you're not getting the most out of his playmaking without him being somebody who unloads the clip all the time. Now I think you can say like, he's somebody who, is the playmaking good enough to warrant unloading the clip? That's a whole different discussion. But like, I think overall, like you have to look at guys like that. And like, so often we talk about like, um, it's what makes it interesting when people look at like three and D wings who have some passing chops and like kind of hype them up and not that they shouldn't be, but like, they're just, okay. Joe Ingles was, was really good role player, but I think uh, it's tough to look at him sometimes with, or uh, I'm, I'm, in the strong way not that people were like hyping up joe ingles too much although the, the jazz broadcast always did a good job of uh, going a little overboard um but like as good of a pl- secondary playmaker as he is like there's just there are reasons why that guy is a secondary playmaker not a primary playmaker um you know like he doesn't have the scoring gravity he doesn't have the first step he doesn't have like this and that and like again like i'm not trying to sound negative but i just think like it's important to remember um some of those constraints um, and why even being an imperfect primary is still important. Mm-hmm. Agree. 100%. I made a mistake saying that was our, we did say we would talk briefly about Bryant and Nash. I personally thought both of them, I would take both of them over Weber this season. I know you said you weren't as clear cut. Do you, do you still ultimately lean that way? What do you, what do you think of that? Uh, I'm, I think with me, like, I don't think, like, uh, I think Kobe is, like, less disputable for me. Like, mm-hmm. I think, like, I mean, you probably ultimately end up taking Kobe over him um, just because of who Kobe was this year and how good he was. Um, but I do think, like, there's enough to be, to at least, like, think about it. I, but again, I do think that you end up taking him. Like, Kobe was, like, at worst, all NBA second team. Um, to me, pretty clear. That just put... Paul Pierce on for, for Jason Kidd instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say Kobe probably over uh, over Chris. I don't think that Kobe's nearly the level of passer, even though he, like, I know people will be like, well, he averaged more assists per game. Like, but it's just not the same in terms of what you're creating offensively. And part of that too, Shaq Merchant. Um, in the nicest way possible. Um, 
I could average quite a few assists per game throwing the ball to Shaq. That is not yeah. meant as Kobe slander, but that's just being that's being realistic. And he was a really good passer, so don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. um with Nash, I just don't think the defense is good enough. Um, and he was a really good offensive player, but my thing is again more looking at okay, well, I just don't think that he took enough shots. Like if he's somebody who like obviously he had usage and carried mm-hmm. a lot of the offense that way, but not enough where I'm like. I don't like obviously it's just tough because he's a really good passer at this point still. He's a solid shooter, but I just I don't I don't I don't think that he's better than Chris Webb. Mm-hmm. I can't get there. It's funny you mentioned he doesn't shoot enough because like he actually shoots more in Dallas than he ever did in Phoenix, at least based on points per um possession. Mm-hmm. So that that's a, a little interesting because that just shows like, and that's part, I talk about this with a Penny Hardaway article where like most guards, and this is what made Penny so special is most point guards were kind of raised in the Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton school of thought where like you were supposed to set your teammates up. Like that's your job. You're not, you're not, it's not about you. You know, you pick your spots or whatever. And I think Nash was really, uh, I don't want to say brainwashed. I mean, he still had a great career, of course, but I do think he was hindered a little bit by that, you know, the cultural norm of that or whatever. But I still ultimately go Nash. But the thing is, we're doing like ranges anyways. So we could just put it all in a range, right? So we have like, for sure, we had five guys, right? And then we were kind of quibbling mm-hmm. about Bryant, Nash. So that means that like, where me and you ultimately land, we'll say like Weber's in that like six to eight range of yeah. player this season. And I mean, like, since we're saying this is like his peak year. So basically his peak, he's like, you know, what you'd call like a, a super strong, like all, all NBA guy, weak MVP, like guy. Right. Um, and that just, I mean, that, that just shows like, you know, people, uh, they always talk about these revolutionary guys, a lot of them. And I think Weber is one of them because of the injuries, but they always talk about them with like, they talk about him like a, like a Greek tragic hero, right? Like, it's like, Oh man, like, you know, he walked so Jokic, I mean, he crawled so Jokic could walk, but he never got to really fulfill his his destiny because the injuries, all, all this stuff. But like, the thing is, like, when Weber was right, he was a damn good basketball player. Like, he was, mm-hmm. you know, one of the best we had to offer. These are all like, we're talking about the best of the best, and he was right there with them. Um, Mark, before we, we summarize, we conclude this, put a bow on it. Do you have any other parting thoughts about Weber? Uh, man, I really, a couple, like number one, um, it's just disappointing the way that the Michigan, um, the way that the, the Michigan, uh, um, scandal, which I don't even like calling it a scandal because it's, it's not, kind of, it's not a scandal, yeah. but <laughs> the like, only scandal was the exploitation of the players that that was the scandal, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I look at that and it's just, uh, it's unfortunate how much that impacted the way that I think his career has been viewed. Um, like, I think if, like, if that's something that happens today, like that's, it's completely different. Um, granted just because I mean, the NCAA is completely different now. NCAA that's shameless organization, but, um, I, I think like that contributed to him being held out of the hall of fame as long as he was, um, I think overall, just another reinforcement for me, the injuries suck because um, that's somebody like, I think uh, not to rub this in for Kings fans, but like 
if he doesn't get injured in 0203, like team maybe wins the title. Like that, that they had a they had a shot. Um, and you can look at that for countless times because again, like 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 we mentioned, like he's never the same player after that. Um, like what limited lift he did have kind of even evaporates even more. He doesn't have the same quickness. Um, he's just not the same player. And unfortunately, like it's weird too, because that team was kind of old. Like, even like, yeah, they had some young players, like Gerald Wallace was young, and like uh the it's not even a silver lining because it doesn't make up for it, but like Peja takes a step to being like an all NBA level guy mm-hmm. um for a season or two after Weber gets hurt. And, and then they make the the Artest trade and, and Chris leaves too. And um it's just like it's a very unfortunate how everything played out and a lot of it is due to injury, um, which sucks. And I absolutely hate seeing that stuff play out. Yeah, I don't. I actually have, I'm going to flex this right now while you're, I have the Fab Five book sitting right okay. next to me. I read it for, um, for the, you know, research of this article, podcast episode, whatever. I watched the documentary, you know, uh, obviously I'm familiar with them. Everyone knows about the Fab Five, but like, like you said, it's just like, it sucks because, um, like you said, if it was just a different time, if we were in like today, we had the NIL and stuff, like no one would think twice about what Weber was doing, but it's just like the the cultural norms of the time. And then it's like these guys, man, it sucks because like, you know, Jalen and, and Chris, I know they've kind of amended things, but like they were never the same after that. And they were torn apart because it's something that's like on like, just like a, an overarching level. Like it wasn't, it wasn't their fault to begin with. It's like the system that kind of had them uh, fighting against each other. So I was just, it's so, so unfortunate. Um, yeah. I mean, that's why it's really unfortunate. I'm just glad that like, you know, Weber was eventually ducked into the hall in that, like, you know, the younger generation of people covering this game, like yourself, you know, we appreciate him and we're, we're trying to spread the good, the good word. That's all we can do. Yeah. Well, Mark, I appreciate you being the final interviewee of Blazing the Trail, man. It's always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to covering this crazy season with you, brother. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Blazing the Trail. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way towards raising awareness for the series. Hey, I don't make the rules here. Just the podcasts. Also, Be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications when new articles and podcast episodes come out from me and all my other wonderful coworkers at Basketball News. Before I go, special thanks to my bosses, Alex Kennedy and Scott Hale for making this series possible. Thanks to my editors, Brian Fritz and Spencer Davies for their help with my articles and podcasts. And lastly, special thanks to all of you for following along. You all make doing what I do so damn enjoyable. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys on my next historical miniseries, whenever that may be. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.